welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, episode number 57. I'm your host, Ken Gagney, and today I'm speaking with Natalie Yuhaz, the creative lead at ReVenture Games. Hello, Natalie. Hello. How are you today? I am okay. I was sick last week, but I am better now. I will stop sounding like a robot now. <laughs> we had to reschedule our first call, which is fine. We had plenty of time to do it because you were not feeling that great after just having gotten home from a whirlwind tour of the conference Adventure X. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. London is very bitter and cold. And well, I'm living in York, so it's not that much better. So it was going from cold to more cold. Oh, dear. Yeah, it's that time of year when pretty much it's inescapable here in the Northern Hemisphere, unfortunately. Yes, and I'm used to having uh, hot summers at around this time of the year because I've just moved from Australia. So that's been quite a cultural uh, clash, but I do prefer the cold. It's just getting used to it. Ah, are you originally from Australia? Yes, I'm from Melbourne. I just moved here in August, so I have not had a white Christmas yet, and maybe I will. Who knows? Oh my, I have had actually a number of developers from Melbourne on my other podcast, IndieCider, where we talk about indie video games. Hmm. We had Mr. Sion Rosenblum, who did Fight the Dragon and Pac-Man 256. Hmm. And we also had some representatives of, from Tin Man Games. They do... They kind of choose your own adventure games, aren't they? Exactly. Fine. Like The Warlock yeah. of Firetop Mountain and To Be or Not To Be, which was based on Hamlet. Yes, I only heard about them recently. I believe they're doing a um, uh, Miss Fisher's Mysteries uh, series soon. That will be good. I'm not sure I've heard about that. I'll have to have them back on my show. <laughs> so what was it that brought you to England, if I may ask? Uh, well, I've always wanted to try living overseas, and um, I've got a good friend who lives here in York, so I was like, well, if I'm going to you know, move overseas and try this for a while, um, I might as well live somewhere near that, somewhere actually I know and um, I'm good friends with. Uh, back in Melbourne, I was kind of very reclusive. I like I lived about an hour away from the city, and I wasn't very social. So I haven't really been very social um, in my adult life since maybe high school. And so it's been quite good just to have someone that I feel like I can hang out with. So we play a lot of adventure games. So <laughs> that brings us to our next topic. Yes, I want to ask you, since you are the creative lead at ReVenture Games, I'm wondering, what is ReVenture Games? Well, ReVenture Games is... Well, I, we, I, I'm trying to think of how to put it. Um, we've been making freeware titles for the past couple of years, uh, mostly by my design. There's a Marcus Sayer in Germany who is a uh, he, he tends to do the UI design and the sound design, um, and so he helps me come up with these rather insane little. Uh, I wouldn't quite call them adventure games. They've always most of them have been quite hybrided with other genres, uh, such as we did a. Um, I'm trying to think of which one to talk about. Uh, for an Adventure Jam, not last year, but the year before, there, um, we came out with a game called Able Mabel Gets a Job, which looked very much like a early Sierra uh, SCI game, but it was all um, mini games rather than um, inventory puzzles and uh, crude language, because that's what I seem to excel at when I start writing dialogue. We all have our strengths. Yes. And how is it that you got into making games? Was this just a, a side project or had you gone to school for it? Uh, well, originally back in high school when I decided I wanted to do something creative, I actually did a degree in 3D animation, except I uh, I got out of that, uh, not get out of that, I um, graduated from that 
just as the global economic crisis happened. And so I ended up working about nine years in gas and electricity companies. And uh, along uh, probably about 2009, I actually started doing um, Let's Playing, which uh, introduced me to another um, adventure gamer developer, uh, Francisco Gonzalez, uh, who does a lot of work with Wedged Eye Games, uh, who makes the Wedged, sorry, the Blackwell series. He was saying to me that, you know, like, if if you want to get back into this stuff, why, you know, why don't you start making your own stuff? And so the past couple of years have been mostly just making short experiment games uh, with, as I said, um, Marcus Sayer from Germany. And uh, we've recently decided that, you know, um, well, not recently, I, I got made redundant at my last gas and electricity job and decided, well, you know, if I'm going to come over here and do this great big experience, why not add to it becoming a full-time game developer? Um which didn't quite work out as I hoped since now I have a day job. But, you know, the uh, idea of making a commercial game is still there. Um, in fact, we've got an Indiegogo campaign at the moment to try and fund it. Um, it's a murder mystery called Lorna Baines, uh, For Whom the Southern Bell Tolls, which is just basically they're going to be like a whole um, – do you want me to just start talking about that now or <laughs> – Go back to what I've I've started rambling now. No, no, no. I'm still. I, we definitely will be talking a lot about Lorna Baines and Indiegogo. I want. I'm a little bit more curious about the origins of your ambitions. Do you use any sort of studio to make your games? By studio, I mean like adventure game studio or any sort of game engine. Uh, yes. Well, we start. I started out using adventure game studio. We're now using Unity. Um, mostly because I, I can pretty much use uh, a lot of things. Like I'm very adaptable. Uh, I learn software very quickly. Um, I've got, I do have a couple of short degrees in programming, although I, that's one of the things that I tend to not put so much of my focus on since I'm doing all the 3d animation and the writing and the design as well. But yeah, so we use adventure game studio. we found it kind of limiting. And, um, especially when, you know, like when you're trying to do something, not quite an adventure game, it doesn't always fit into the, the way adventure game studio thinks. Meanwhile, unity, you can just keep adding stuff as much as you like. And, uh, you know, go like, Oh, I, you know, like, why don't we randomly put a Sudoku puzzle in here? Yeah, let's do it. Let's, you know, work out how to program that in and just add it. I can see how that might be a little bit dangerous, in fact, where if you have any idea, you can throw it in and you might end up with a mishmash of ideas without the constraints that a more limited game engine might require. Uh, yes, but I think the the reason why that I, I like the idea of being able to put extra things in, um, if you think back to adventure games back in like the early, like late 80s, early 90s, some of them had some very, you know, strange ideas about how to do things. They all had different interfaces. It was all, you know, they were working out what they wanted to do for themselves. Whereas like Adventure Game Studio has been built very much in mind with like the original Sierra, uh, you know, walk to inventory puzzle in mind um it has been uh modded and you know expanded on a bit that you know you can include some things such as like the lucas arts way um and you know people doing their own thing as well but uh, i think you know using unity and I, I use adventure creator um by icebox as my main plugin for that that i've still got that adventure game uh main framework but being able to add other things to it is just it's the freedom of it's just great. Now you just mentioned both Lucas and Sierra as being some of the adventure games from the late 80s and early 90s and there seems to be whether it's legitimate or artificial sort of a, a division between those two camps of either you're more a fan of one kind of game like Sierra or the other LucasArts. Which camp do you fall into? 
Uh, technically, I, pr- I, pr- I fall more into Sierra, although I really do think that that divide is rather artificial. Um, but uh, I, I, I certainly preferred um, longer stories, more in-depth stories, if that makes any sense in terms of like, I'm not saying that the LucasArts ones were superficial, but um, I liked the idea of like, you know, there being a whole heap of different genres. Meanwhile, like um, with LucasArts, it was always like, we're making a comedy game. Sure, we're doing like a different premise each time, but it's a comedy game. Um, where with uh, Sierra, you'd have things such as like, well, you know, there might be puns in um, King's Quest, but it's all kind of serious. Or um, you've got the Laura Laura Bow series, which is you know murder mysteries, but it's all about learning intrigue and observation and comprehension. Um, and then you've got your Space Quest and your you know Quest for Glory, and they're all like you know very compartmentalized little subgenres of the adventure game series. Whereas like uh, LucasArts is very much we are making a comedy game. I hope you like comedy. <laughs> so would you say that what divides these two genres of adventure games is more tone than it is gameplay mechanics? Yes. I mean, they're, they're, they've got different engines, which is the reason why they've got different mechanics. But in the end, it is still inventory puzzles and dialogue. It's still an adventure game at the end. Hmm. Right. Lucas used Scum for, the most, for their games, right? Yes. And what was it that Sierra used? Did they have a name for their engine? Uh, I believe they called this, uh, SC- well, the original one was SCI, which is um, Sierra's Creative Interpreter. And I think then they upgraded on that. And I believe that Adventure Game Studio is based on that idea. Gotcha. Okay. I've never tried making these games before. I've heard a little bit about the different studios and game engines that are available now, like AGS, as we mentioned. On my other mm. podcast, I interviewed the creator of Kathy Rain, which I'm sure you've heard of. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's a great game, but one of the things he told me about AGS is that characters can't walk and talk at the same time. So a character has to move up to somebody and then stop and say something, which is a little (laughs) artificial. Yes. um, Similarly, uh, whenever there's two characters actually trying to interact with each other, you can't really have, you know, one person speaking over the other person. It's all very much... It is my turn, then it is your turn, and then it is my turn again. Yeah, one game earlier this year that had a much more natural take on conversation was Oxenfree. Did you play that one? Uh, I saw it. I didn't uh, I didn't actually have time to play it at the time, and I've um, not picked it up ever since. But it did, it did look very interesting. If you have the opportunity, it's worth going back to, because your character is given various dialogue choices to choose from while the other characters are still talking. So you can choose to interrupt or to stay silent and let the conversation play out without your participation. It's really interesting. Much more realistic, in my opinion. Hmm. Yeah. I shall definitely give that a go. So you said you do a lot of your work with Marcus Sayer out in Germany. How did you two meet each other? Uh, It's one of those things where actually recently we tried to work out how we did meet each other. Uh, We did meet on the internet, but we we both can't remember how we actually started knowing each other. Um, But it was about 2012, 2013. Um, I was trying to make uh, our first game, Lorna Baines, uh, The Coming of Age, but I hadn't really delved into the programming side of things. So I was, I, I think I was trying to find a programmer and he just suggested that he could do it. Again, I still have no idea how we met. It's it's almost like uh, a blank spot in both of our memories. I, unfortunately, I think that sometimes happens when you meet people over the internet. 
but so he uh, programmed the game for it. Uh, I made, I designed everything. I did all the art. I did all the art very quickly because I, at that point it was like, well, this is just going to be a quick little demo. And I think I spent something like six months on it, um, which is much longer than I anticipated. But I find that when you've got a full-time job and then, you know, doing game dev in the evening, these things just really stretch out. <laughs> One thing I've learned from backing Kickstarter is that things almost always take longer than expected. Yeah. So you made your first game with him, and was that a Lorna Baines title? Yes. So that was um, what was like. So originally, it was going to be. um, uh, I don't know if you know the history at all of uh, the game Laura Bow by uh, Sierra, but originally, I was like, you know, I want to prove that I can make a game. um, So I'm going to make like basically a carbon copy of Laura Bow. Um, but then as I was working on it, I was like, well, you know, like th- there's like a, a funny reference in the second one where like someone misses her name and it's almost Lorna Baines. So I was like, well, I'll take the name, but I'm going to get rid of everything else, <laughs> you know, like, um, because when I was like looking at like, you know, trying to recreate Laura Burrow, I was just like, she doesn't actually, uh, you know, like do any real investigating. Like she learns stuff, but she stumbles into stuff. So I was trying to come up with like a protagonist who actually like instigated like looking for things, had a reason for like asking questions, um, you know, like tried to like, you know, like work out the plot for herself, you know, like usually when it comes to like a murder mystery, like series, not even like in games, but like when you watch television, it's sort of like, why do these people that aren't the police get involved with a murder mystery? So I came up with instead of it being like, you know, a student who's trying to learn journalism, I came up with a con artist who's trying to, you know, maybe blackmail people into like, you know, being like, well, I know this thing about you. If you don't want me to tell the police, maybe you should, you know, um, spill the beans. Um, So it's in addition to like, you know, the whole murder mystery, it's also her trying to get ahead, um, which I think is a much more compelling uh, story than just, oh, I stumbled into a murder. Let's solve it. Yeah, your protagonist is much more competent and intentional. Yes. I think that's fantastic. It reminds me of the Richard Donner cut of Superman 2. In the original theatrical release, Lois Lane accidentally stumbles upon Superman's secret identity, whereas the original director intended her to discover it through investigative journalism, which is what she's best known for. And I think that latter interpretation is much more consistent with the character and much more respectful because... To do otherwise just seems a little bit sexist to me. Yeah, exactly. Um, or it also kind of makes your protagonist kind of pointless because, like, uh, especially when it comes to adventure games, there's always, uh, especially when you're playing like Sierra ones, there's this divide between what the character knows and what the player knows. And I kind of wanted to bridge that gap a little bit. So it's sort of like, well, um, The character, of course, is trying to, you know, get ahead because that's you as the player trying to get ahead as well. Um, Whereas in the original, be like, "Uh, you know, Lana, uh, sorry, Laura doesn't really know what's going on, but uh, you know where you need to go. So you're just going to walk her there. Right. It gives the players much more to do in a way. Yes. So uh, originally, though, I was planning that to be like a a long adventure, you know, like something you'd play for like four or five hours. Um, I still have like the entire script, not script, but like the entire design 
um, mapped out and um, maybe something that will, will be worked on at some point. But uh, now it's going to be kind of more comp- like shorter, like, you know, like uh, novels, like you'd get like a small paperback novel and it's like, it's a story, it's a fully contained, but it's a short mystery. And so then you can just keep adding on to that. So you still get like your character arc. It just takes, you know, a couple of cases where, whereas like if it was a long adventure game, you'd have to like cram all this, like, you know, like, uh, character development where like, you know, like, Oh, you know, maybe she's decides she's going to do something else or she's going to fall in love with someone. And that all takes place over a five hour narrative, which might even just be a one evening. Whereas if you've got, you know, short little chapters, then you can go like, well, you know, she's met this guy here, but she doesn't actually hook up with him, you know, for like four, four or five books from here. So it, it keeps the tension while also, you know, building on the development. But this is different from episodic installments like Telltale has been doing. It's not all one large game. No, exactly. Um, that's one of the things when we were um, setting up the Indiegogo campaign, um, people were like saying, oh, so this is episodic. I'm like, mm, no, I wouldn't say episodic. I would call it an anthology s- uh, series, certainly. Whereas, like, you know, you definitely have, like, you know, your your cases. And there is development in terms of, like, the characters. But you don't want to, like... Uh, stop at any point and be like, well, I don't actually know what's happened in what I've played so far. I want it to definitely be like you re- you've you've been given a question like very early on in that case, and you have the answer by the end of the case. You might feel like there might be something more out of all the ensemble characters, but the actual question given to you in that case has been answered. Like you know, like who killed this person, or like why did this happen. It's almost like a series of the Benedict Cumberbatch series, Sherlock, where it may be three 90-minute movies that compose the series, but you can really watch almost any one of them, and there is a beginning, middle, and end to that. Exactly. Excellent. So what is the next adventure for Lorna Baines? I understand you are currently in development for it. Yes, so we are currently working on uh, For Whom the Southern Bell Tolls. Uh, Since not many people have played the very short prologue that I made back in 20, 2013, 2014, around there, that uh, we decided that uh, we would kind of encompass that part of it in this game plus a whole extra section. So it's sort of like this is this is the origin story that people will remember of her, like why she is doing this, and it's setting up a whole heap of like the characters in the town that she'll be working in with the next couple of games. So... Um, as much as we've, we're, there'll be a murder, there'll also be a hunt for the murderer. Um, it's more of a, you know, the reason why it's called For Whom the Southern Bell Tolls is because she is a Southern Bell, and it's mostly about her. Um, so wh- how does this game build on the coming of age that came before? Uh, well, actually, it's inclu- um, the coming of age is technically included in this. So the coming of age, uh, when I look back at it, as much as there is a murder mystery there, and there is a, a like a preamble to actually seeing the murder. Uh, it's mostly, it was mostly that you as Lorna was working at the, the restaurant and you were just, you know, giving people their, their food. Uh, whereas for that part of uh, the coming of age part of for whom the Southern Bell tolls, you won't just be, you know, serving people. You'll also be like asking people questions. You'll be stealing some things from people. Uh, I've actually put in a, a whole fence uh, mechanic into the game that, you know, like, um, in terms of like, you know, the, usually when you come to solutions, there's, you know, like you have to find like an outrageous inventory item or, you know, you have to do a dialogue puzzle. 
the, in the, those will be included as well. But I think that, you know, especially when there's people going, like, oh, I hate this type of mechanic. You'd be like, well, you know, maybe you can bribe the guy. You've been stealing things. So, you know, why don't you go and sell that and then just be like, hey, look, I don't want to do this. And how long will this game be? You said that you're releasing these sort of bite-sized novellas. So is this like a four to six hour game? I would say probably like a two to three hour at most, uh, just because we are two people and uh, most of the work is falling on my shoulders and I'm currently doing a day job as well. So unless the Indiegogo campaign goes along, I'd probably say two to three hours is going to be a good length for one person, well, one and a half people to work on. And I see that you're looking for 16 and a half thousand pounds. What would that money be put toward? Uh, well, a good chunk of it's going towards like things such as music and paying for voice acting. Some of it will be for, you know, so that I can, you know, afford to live, um, maybe even like leave my, my day job so that I can, you know, get this game out as soon as possible. And, uh, of course paying Marcus as well when he does work on it as well. Will this be the first Lorna Bain game to have voice acting? Uh, no, actually I did. We did voice acting for the, uh, prologue um episode although that was it was all very um unprofessional and most of the voices were me including the men (laughs) now i don't know much about game development but i know that this is as you said part of a series and that you're working on the art is there the opportunity to reuse assets or does every game have to start from scratch uh, no, the the plan is in mind that, um, well, we probably have, uh, I don't know how many games we'll get to before um, we call it quits, but I would definitely say that considering that it's all going to be set within the same town with largely the same amount of people, um, a lot of asset reuse will be, gr- will be you know, generally used. So uh, it'll, it won't take as long to make the next game or, you know, um, it won't cost as much, which is great. Now, the previous games in the series have been freeware. Will that be true for this one as well? No, this this will definitely be a commercial title. Um, it, it, I think I priced the copy of the game to about seven pounds. What made you decide to go commercial for this latest release? Uh, mostly because I would like to not have to do a a day job that uh, when I want to do this full time. Um, obviously, that requires money, and uh, goods can be re- um, the. I can't remember the quote anymore. Goods can be exchanged for, for nah, no, it's gone. It's a <laughs> but um, yeah, I think that certainly, uh, especially when you're a small indie company, it is very important when you've put so much time and effort into something to try and get something back for it. Uh, I mean, freeware is great and all, and you know, I would never have regretted um, any game that I've put out freeware or any game in future that I decide to put out as freeware. But I think there are certain allowances that you make yourself when you make a freeware title such as, you know, this is free. This doesn't have to be, you know, great. This doesn't have to be perfect. You know, um, I don't have to worry about, you know, if that voice acting take wasn't very good. I don't have to worry if someone doesn't like my voice in terms of the voicing act, voice acting or, you know, if I decide to do something ridiculous and insane, then I can, you know, if someone comes back to me saying this was a stupid thing you did, be like, well, it was free and, you know, it was entertaining. But I think especially when you go commercial uh, or at least try to go commercial, there's the expectation that this is the thing that you're trying to put all your effort into. And, um, you know, usually just saying like, you know, oh, you know, this is all right. It isn't good enough for yourself. So you try and do better. So it's basically you get what you pay for. Exactly. So because I've been doing freeware for the past several years and they all have subscriptions of everything that I pay for for my tools. And it's like. Well, at this point, you know, like I, like, you know, I've paid quite a bit for people to play my free games, you know, 
um, at this point, I would like to make it, you know, it's something that I feel like I can do really well. And uh, people seem to enjoy the stuff that I have put out so far that uh, it seems only right to start saying, maybe you can give me a little bit of money back so then I could keep making this for you without killing myself. And ideally, players will be able to get a higher quality experience because they're getting what they pay for. Exactly. That too. Excellent. So what are some of the more creative rewards you've created for this Indiegogo campaign? Uh, well, we don't actually have that many, uh, when we say rewards, we're mean, meaning like perks or reward tiers. Right. Perks. In terms of that, I, I, I know that, uh, I actually don't have that many in terms of rewards because I find with a lot of these Indiegogo campaigns and Kickstarters that, you know, a huge amount of the money actually goes to creating things like, you know, like, um, uh, big box, big boxes, posters, figurines, a lot of the production costs that you could actually use to making the game actually ends up going to paying for that instead. So in terms of like the rewards we have, it's all pretty much digital. We have like the soundtrack, we've got a copy of the game. Uh, we've got, you know, like um, beta testing access so that you can like, you know, people that actually go in for that will actually have the opportunity to, you know, alter things, well, not alter things hugely, but, you know, um, at least, you know, give their feedback on things and so that we can improve it as well so that going forward it will, you know, be the best thing that it can be. Uh, probably the most uh, imaginative thing that we have. So there will be several scenes inside the game um, where instead of having, you know, just, you know, fake people that I've just made up randomly, I can put people's faces in. Um, the game is in th pre-rendered 3D, um, so I can, you know, like, just alter the faces to match someone, work with them as well to say, like, oh, well, what type of clothing would you like? Like, this is the sort of clothing I've got in terms that I've pre-modeled. You know, you can change the color, you can change the hairstyle, but, you know, at, at, in the end it's sort of like um, you've still got to fit within that time period of the game. I think it's wise for you to be focusing on digital rewards like this because, as you said, such a large amount of crowdfunding budgets go to making physical rewards, and that gets in the way of what the money is supposed to be going for, what the people are actually paying for, which is the product. Whereas with the digital mm. reward, it certainly still requires your time and creative energy to put somebody into a game, but you're not paying for the manufacture of a thing. You're not paying to ship it internationally. And that's mm. that much more money you can put toward the game. Yes. No, I, I, I have been also considering, um, like, you know, there's shapewares or shapewares, ways, um, the online 3D printer distributor that, you know, at, maybe at some point that we would actually, ha like, you know, set up some models that could be printed out as figurines. And if people want that, well, then they're also supporting the brand in general, <laughs> you know, rather than um, uh, getting it as a reward. Well, then they can, you know, it's kind of like back a kit in the sense that, you know, that you can add something extra to your pledge, although in a completely separate way. No, I get that. Some sort of an online store where a portion of the proceeds go to support your flagship product. Mm. Yep, I get it. Now, you are running this crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo. What prompted you to choose that platform as opposed to, say, Kickstarter or Fig? Uh, well, I hadn't even considered Fig at all. Um, it's one of those things that it's it's so new that uh, I just was sort of like, yeah, I'm not going there. Um, but uh, in terms of Kickstarter versus Indiegogo, well, for one thing, Indiegogo has the flexible backing so that, you know, if you 
um, you get anything that someone has pledged to you. So while, you know, I would say that we haven't got a huge amount pledged to us at the moment, what we do have that is coming to us regardless, because I still want to make this game, even if it fail, even if like the overall goal fails. So uh, it's more about crowd, you know, like um, raising funds than just being like, if this, if we don't get this, this isn't happening, which I think tends to happen a lot. Um, people don't quite reach their goal and they go, well, I guess we got nothing now. So, um, and I think also Kickstarter takes a slightly um, higher cut from the uh, overall funding than Indiegogo. Oh, that's possible. I don't know about that. The flexible goal that you're referring to with Indiegogo, that's different from Kickstarter's all or nothing. Whereas with Indiegogo, as you said, if you reach 50% of your goal by the time the campaign closes, you get 50% of your goal. It may not be the mm. ideal amount you're asking for, but you still get something to work with. Exactly. And so what you're saying is that no matter how much money you're ra you raise, this game will be made. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if we're at the level that we are now, and uh, it's going to happen. It's just going to take a lot longer because I won't be able to put as much time into it. I won't be able to, you know, maybe even contract some people to work on it extra as well, which is what I was thinking of doing that, you know, with um, part of my share with like, you know, keeping the day job for a little bit longer, but then being like, you know, like I can, you know, bring some, you know, more people in to say like, can you make this bit for me and then add it in and such. So I'm making jobs. I'm a job creator now. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You're employing people to make the adventure game genre alive and well again. Oh, it's never dead. It's just uh, it's just lying in wait. That's and true. It's been kind of it's kind of been eaten by uh, the action genre as well. But you know, uh, many people have spoken about that at great length. Yeah, and especially with the rise in popularity of mobile devices and tablets, point and click is such a intuitive interface for this kind of game. Yeah, I'm actually interested to see when someone actually comes out with the VR version of adventure um, adventure games because I I, I mean I, I, it's one of those things that uh, I actually I've got an Oculus Rift and I just cancelled my Oculus Touch uh, pre order just because I was like I I can't justify the cost of this at the moment with um, how my finances are going but they were like you know oh we see that you're a game developer you know like you can apply for a development kit if you've got a VR title I'm like I don't have a VR title but the moment they said that I was just like I can just imagine like with like the Oculus Touch just like pointing at something and actually making it go click be like point and click is alive again huh you know there are a lot of genres that have been imagined as being adapted to VR, I've never even considered what it would be like to play a traditional point-and-click adventure game in VR. But in a way, it would be kind of like the hollow novels that you see on Star Trek, where you are actually in the room and you can investigate the items personally. Yeah, or like, you know, say a murder mystery, like as, as I've been making, uh, but you could like, you know, even manipulate the body, although that sounds terrible, but people would have so much fun just playing around, like, you know, like trying to like mess with the body, like moving it around. I don't think the commissioner would appreciate you tampering with evidence like that. No, no, they, they wouldn't, but uh, someone would take a great photo. It would be fun. The lads would love it. I think it's similar to a Batman VR game that has come out where you are investigating a crime scene, but one of the problems they haven't resolved with VR yet is movement. I think in that Batman game, you are stationary and you can't walk around the crime scene. Oh. Well, especially with, um, with Oculus Touch coming out, both of them kind of do room scale. I, I think you need a, an extra sensor for the Oculus to do room scale properly. But I, I definitely like the idea of even a small space that you can walk around with. 
Um, and I, I, I beta, not beta tested. I, um, I, I went to GDC this year and, uh, I tried out an Oculus touch game called, I expect you to die, which it's basically like the James Bond idea where like you're trying to get out of a death trap. Um, and that worked really well. I mean, you were able to grab things across from the other side of the room, but it, it was just really great to play, um, and just like also watching other people try and work their way through this uh, poison car that you're trying to uh, like, it's a car filling with poison. And you've got to get out of there as soon as possible. And uh, it just, it works so well. Oh, I think I expect you to die is from the same company that made Orion trail, which I backed on Kickstarter. Hmm. I think I was about to say that uh, I'm pre- I think, well, no, I know. Don't worry. I was about to say, I think it's, um, I expect you to die is about to come out, but of course it is. The um, Oculus Touch is coming out. <laughs> oh, excellent. Uh, I don't know when I would ever get my hands on that. It would probably have to be at a convention or something. But I did get my hands on the Oculus Rift version of Orion Trail, or maybe it was an Oculus Rift, some sort of VR, where you mm. are sitting in the captain's chair of a starship on the bridge. And it was cool to be able to look around and see everybody. Even though it was pixelated 8-bit retro graphics, it was still in a way, a realistic experience to just be able to be in that space. Oh, yeah, I, def- I definitely agree with that. Because um, the, the, th- the few things I've played on the Oculus uh, Rift, not mostly just because I haven't had time to play lately, but um, uh, especially with the uh, the Dream Deck, where they've got some things that are completely in cartooned all around you, but it's just the fact that you are there, that it just sucks you in and immerses you uh, and also not being able to see yourself really helps as well because <laughs> that would be a great clash so Lorna Baines is not coming to Oculus Rift but what platforms do you have it aimed at uh, well who knows maybe it will come to Oculus Rift one day but uh, in the meantime it is coming to PC it's coming to Mac it's coming to Linux uh, maybe it'll come to tablets at some point as well and will those PC Mac and Linux releases be via Steam uh, I, I can't say that for sure, just because I, Steam is one of those things that you can't just straight away say, it's going to happen on Steam. It will certainly be on Humble Store, I would say, um, possibly GOG, and Steam depends on if we get green light, greenlit. How were the previous Lorna Bane games released? Uh, we just, uh, I believe it is up on, uh, what's that, Game Jolt? Yeah, it's on Game Jolt. And uh, also on our website, um, on Indie Game Stand. And I think it was at one point also on the Adventure Game Studio website, but uh, definitely I think that you can you can get any of our titles from our website, which is www.reventuregames.com. Excellent. There will be a link to that in the show notes, as well as to the Indiegogo campaign, which closes when? Uh, it closes on the 12th of January. We extended it by a month, just because, uh, well, mostly that I ha- I've been so busy getting this day job because I needed I needed it, um, that uh, I haven't had much time to campaign, so I just decided... Extra month. That will surely help help us get out there. Ah, that's another flexible aspect of Indiegogo compared to Kickstarter, is which you can extend the deadline. I didn't realize that. Yes. Uh, you can extend it only once, and you can extend it only for a month. So um, there is that. Uh, although I think uh, I think I might, there might actually be a way that you can extend a Kickstarter, but I think you have to apply for it and have a, a damn good reason to them. Interesting. I'll have to look into that. So Lorne of Banes is something that you're working on, and we've been talking about that for the last half hour or so, but I'm also curious to know about a conference you recently went to that we briefly mentioned, which was Adventure X, which was held last month in London, you said? 
Yes, uh, at Goldsmiths University, which I think is in Greenwich. Greenwich. I, I'm not that good with London. I've only been well. I've only been there twice, which was uh, arriving there um, to come here and um, then to go to the conference itself. But that was a really great experience. It was very, uh, very open. Uh, one thing that it was a lot bigger than it has been in previous years for from what I've been told, although um, that's not difficult from what I've understood. So Adventure X is a narrative games convention. And what exactly does that mean? Do they focus on text adventures like Twine, point and click like Adventure Game Studio? What is their scope? So originally it was just for point and click adventure games. Uh, this year they've decided to open it up to anything that, you know, narrative covers. So that's also um, interactive fiction and uh, walking simulators, although everyone seems to hate that title, which I'm, I'm, I'm also agreed with. Um, and uh, also anything, you know, like um, they were talking about Rise of the Tomb Raider in one of their talks, uh, which is an action game that has definitely sucked in the adventure genre into its story. Um, and uh yeah, so it was very, it was a very warm and inclusive area, uh, which is a very strange thing from um, now that I've been trying to get Lorna Baines onto different adventure game websites. The moment that they see the mechanic, oh, inspired, uh, you know, a mechanic inspired by a hidden on- object mechanic, and they go, is it a hidden object game? We don't like hidden object games. They're a bad word. Um, <laughs> so it just seems very strange to be like all games that our adventures are welcome to, no, stay back. Um, <laughs> I, di- I didn't realize that there were elements of the adventure game community that could be so elitist. Oh, I know. I, I didn't realize it either. The, I, I mean, I can understand uh, one of the sites that I, I uh, sent my press release to said that, you know, uh, you know that so many uh, hidden object games come out that we're, you know, we're trying to, you know, separate the things that are more, you know, traditional adventure from hidden object games, which I was like, okay, no, I understand that. But then one said, we don't do casual games at all. And I was like, adventure games kind of are casual games. So, um, yeah, you might want to look at your definitions there. But <laughs> Well, that in itself is an interesting evolution because I would say that adventure games started off 30 years ago as hardcore. Oh, yeah, definitely. But, uh I think the the question that one has to ask itself ask itself ask themselves these days what actually would you consider a casual game? I mean, I would consider a casual game anything that you don't have to like. You know, uh, my father calls it finger gymnastics um, in terms of like you know like using controllers or you know a high stress situation. Uh, whereas I would call, consider a casual game something that you can take at your own pace. Hmm. That's an interesting definition. I'm probably singular in that, but I, I think whenever someone says casual, it's like, well, you know, we're we're not. It's not a high stakes. We're not gun battling. We, you know, we're just we're just seeing what the story is at its own pace. Mm-hmm. So, what was it that you did at at Adventure X? Were you exhibiting, speaking, attending panels? Uh, I was attending panels. I was also meeting up with people, and then whoever saying, "Oh, what are you working on at the moment?" I was like, "Here is my card." Uh, but uh, I. I I had the chance to ex- exhibit, but I, I kind of didn't want to do that just this year um, because I'd never been to that conference. Um, and I was sort of like, well, you know, if there's a whole heap of things on that I want to go do, I don't want to be like stuck to a table for two two days. So I saw a lot of very good talks um, on all different topics. Like they were talking about adventure game history in general, um, the history of IF, which was a talk done by Emily Short. 
the history on adventure games was done by Charles Cecil of Revolution fame, uh, Broken Sword and Beneath the Steel Sky. Um, trying to think what other th- um, points of interest there was. Uh, Wadjadai Games started it out talking about different uh, philosophies of design in adventure games. It was a, it was a very interesting uh, like line of panels in terms of like some of it was about adventure games themselves some of them were about how to make adventure games there was even a panel on the second day that was about how to you know report on adventure games like there was a panel of um journalists talking about adventure games so it sounds like this multi-day conference really spanned a lot of different aspects of one very specific genre although as you said it's expanded its focus to include a lot of different types of narrative are there I want to go back to those boundaries because most games have some sort of narrative. I mean, even Doom had a narrative. And as I recently heard on the podcast Backseat Designer, it may not be (laughs) a great narrative. It could probably, you know, fit on one sheet of toilet paper, but it has a narrative. Mm. And so would Doom or Quake or Wolf 3D be appropriate for Adventure X? Uh, hmm. I think that depends on how elitist people decide to be about the word narrative. And uh, <laughs> certainly I'd probably say if someone tried to make a case for it, someone would be like, yeah, sure, bring it in. Um, <laughs> but I, I think especially when you come to mind with a place and you go like, well, it's a narrative game. The narrative is the main main p- point of it. You would, You certainly wouldn't go into Doom saying the narrative is the main point of this. Mm, yes, that's an important distinction. You play a game like Firewatch or Gone Home or even Life is Strange because you are interested in the narrative. It's not there to support some other element of the game, like the shooting mm. in Doom. It is the main element. Exactly. I, I think especially when you start talking mechanics, it's sort of like, are the mechanics the game or are the mechanics just supporting the story? And you would say that in a narrative game, the mechanics are supporting the story? Yes, definitely. Uh, I. I definitely wouldn't say that if something was specifically to be a shooter, uh, say for example, a killing, killing room, uh, sorry, killing floor two. I just saw a let's play over that this morning where it was sort of like, there are zombies, they're attacking. We don't know why they're attacking, but you know, we should, you know, really want to do that. I would definitely say that that is a mechanic that has been bolstered with some sort of story, but it's not the, the game itself. Isn't the story. The game is the mechanics. Well, I'm glad that they're expanding that focus because the traditional definition and genre of adventure games is evolving. It's changing. Some people would say, for example, that the Telltale games, such as The Walking Dead, The Wolf Among Us, or even other games like Life is Strange, are modern takes on what used to be adventure games. Would you say that's a fair interpretation? Uh, I would definitely say that. I know th- um, in terms of Telltale, I was at a talk at GDC not last this year, but the year before, where uh, they were talking about their design of games, and they actually came out and said, "We don't design games; we design narratives." Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> it's definitely a different philosophy of, uh, especially with when you look at more recent Telltale games, that it's not necessarily. Here is an Im- here is an obstacle. You need to go and do something to clear the obstacle. It's more these are choices you make, and this is what happens to the story because of the choices you've made. Ah, that makes perfect sense to me. Well, you had mentioned the pejorative term "walking simulator," which for me includes games like Gone Home and Firewatch. And Firewatch for me 
is one of the best games of 2016. There was, you know, no action. It was a first-person narrative game with tons of dialogue, and you make decisions that may affect your relationship with the other characters, but doesn't really affect the course of the plot. The same things will happen. There is a definitive beginning, middle, and end. But I just had a great time at Firewatch. And if that is the future of gaming, not at the expense of other genres, but in addition to, then I think the kinds of games that you find at Adventure X are very promising for what the future holds. Oh, definitely. One thing that I, cause I really liked Firewatch this year as well. Uh, the idea of that, there's almost an extra game on top of just trying to work out what's going on. And I think I had like three or four different, like full plots. And then I was like, Oh, the actual ending had nothing to do with anything that my brain had been building up around all the visual clues and all the other clues. So it's almost like I have made a game for myself. Sure. It didn't end up being that game, but I had like the whole thing and it was satisfying in my mind (laughs) that it got smashed. (laughs) Do you feel that that's a misleading narrative then that all the clues they presented were so many red herrings? No, I see. I think I think it's very much like real life because your brain tries to make patterns out of things. So you might go through life, uh, you know, like there's the concept that, you know, there's no one single truth. It's kind of like that, that, you know, you've your brain has taken all these clues and it's made something out of it. It might not be what the game play, like the, the intent of the actual game is, but in a way, that is sort of, uh, it's a narrative experience in itself of your brain trying to work something out and your brain entertaining you in the meantime. Um, and it, sure, maybe it doesn't end up that way, but your brain has had the fun of actually working out stuff for itself. So it's not a poor narrative on the part of the game. It's a hyperactive imagination on the part of the player. Yes. <laughs> I always find the point of narratives is to make your brain think and to, like, you know, it come up with more things for itself. So like, it's kind of like expanding your experience of things so that you can create more interesting things. I, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily mean as a game designer. I mean, like before I decided to do any sort of game design, I always loved like reading stories just so that I could like, when I was thinking about stuff or trying to work something out, be like, Oh, it's could be like this or a bit like that. Or, you know, like, Oh, wouldn't it be great if something was like this? So it's all about expanding me. Yeah, and that's one of the things I like about the gaming community is that we have these shared experiences with different interpretations. Other people may have had a different experience with Firewatch that I may not have thought of. And it's the same thing I like about book clubs, which is if I read a book beginning to end, I'll have had only a specific experience and I may have missed some of the subtleties or some of the subtext. Whereas if I go on to Twitter or Reddit or Facebook and I start talking to other people about a video game, that is going to help me expand my imagination as well and go back and rethink what just happened. Hmm. It's, it's interesting, actually, not in terms of um, adventure games themselves, but I've been watching Westworld, um, which, you know, in terms of game design itself, if you were playing that as a game, terrible, absolutely terrible. But the, the one of the things I have been enjoying, like, because I'm more of a lurker when it comes to, you know, internet forums and all that, but I do so enjoy like trying to see like people like justify what they think they've seen. It's like, Oh no, I definitely saw this thing happen in Westworld. So that means that this thing's happening. It's like, I don't know. I've been enjoying it, but that is a really weird idea that you've come up with there. Um, But I I do just so love like people sending themselves mad down, like through rabbit holes. 
It's really interesting you mentioned Westworld because I have not seen it, but the character played by Anthony Hopkins said something that I then saw quoted on Twitter by Jordan Mechner, the creator of Prince of Persia. And it's a four four or five sentences I want to briefly read here because it ties in. I have a feeling I might even know what you're talking about, but yeah, go ahead. You probably do, but since I have it in front of me, I'll share it with you. The guests don't return for the obvious things we do, the garish things. They come back because of the subtleties, the details. They come back because they discover something they imagined no one had ever noticed before, something they fell in love with. They're not looking for a story that tells them who they are. They already know who they are. They're here because they want a glimpse of who they could be. And I think that's a lot of what adventure games do. Yeah. To go, well, to go back to uh, Laura Bow really quickly, the uh, Sierra title. It, Laura Bow 2, it's one of those interesting things that I, I've played it so many times, but I feel like every time I play it, I find something new about it. Um, Certainly, if you end up like going through the uh, the guts of the actual game code, you find a whole heap of extra dialogue and scenes that had been cut. But um, which in itself, it's sort of like, wow, a game like from the '90s, it has a whole heap of hidden scenes on it. That's just bizarre. But um, just even the game itself, because uh, the thing that actually drew me to Laura Boa and like murder mysteries and adventure games in general was because you can go ahead and play that game and barely learn anything you like you know if you don't observe things if you don't like investigate things if you don't like stumble into the right area uh you have no idea what's going on you might get to the end of the game and you don't know what's going on but you if you spend the time uh laboriously going through every single scene in every single time thing to see if someone just randomly shows up and does something then you like find out that there's this whole extra narrative underneath the the you know the 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 straight route through the game. Uh, actually, I think there's a play, uh, a let's play of the first game, Laura Bow, which kind of the similar thing happened where you can, you know, not see anything that happens in the entire game. You can actually miss every single corpse in the game and the game just ends and you're just like, Oh yeah, what happened? And I think it mostly like came down to saying, and anyway, I decided to run a couple more laps around the house. Cause you know, fitness is important, but <laughs> it was just entertaining to know that, you know, like, that there are there's a lot of games out there that you know they have extra bits in them that you can come back to and find later um especially when you come to like rpgs and you go like oh i've not seen this quest before and this is a bizarre quest and yet i love this quest more than i love the entire game and that's actually one of the things that makes it hard to do let's plays of adventure games which i have done because i get comments oh, I've from people done them as well and, and people will leave comments saying how did you miss this what do, what do you what's the point of playing the game if you're going to skip all the good stuff and i'm like i didn't know i was skipping the good stuff i didn't know it was there it was hidden yeah, I, especially because I've done a lot of Let's Plays of adventure games and a lot of children's games um, and made a lot of dirty jokes about children's games that probably shouldn't ever be uttered. But uh, <laughs> um, but I find especially with the Let's Plays that people really seem to like from me are the ones that I've played a lot. So I it's sort of like I'm showing them, you know, these are things I like. It makes it a bit difficult when you start talking about, you know, like in terms of how much are you going to give away while you're playing and be like, oh, you know, like, I know this is happening because, you know, like, it'll, it'll get justified, like, you know, half an hour from now in, like, maybe two or three videos from now that I was right all along. Um, but I, especially when you're playing something blind for the first time, it's sort of, you, you kind of don't want to go and do too much searching through the game because you, you realize that it's just going to be a lot of you just going like, ah, I don't know what's going on. 
uh, and it's, it's kind of not compelling to watch. I've been actually doing a lot, like um, streaming lately of uh, hidden objects games. I didn't used to do hidden objects games because I knew it was just going to be a lot of me just going like, I'm looking for a hammer. I'm looking for an ear. You know, it's just like a whole heap of like, because that's the main thing that I tend to do when I do hidden objects games. I repeat items from the list so that it just like keeps like as I'm like searching through the screen I'm just reminding myself of the two things I'm looking for at any given time um so I'm like that is not a compelling thing for someone to watch but if I then change the uh like the framing of it from uh, you know an official let's play to streaming like you know like oh you know if um, everyone gets to watch and join in if I can't find something I can just go like oh I don't know where the wrench is can anyone see what the wrench is in this screen um and then I think that that sort of allows you to, to do things such as, you know, explore the game properly instead of just being like, I have a goal. I need to get this goal done. I need to reach the end of this game. No, I tried live streaming Firewatch, and that was actually a lot of fun because people were pointing out things I was missing, but in a collaborative, cooperative sense, not a critical sense. And they were enthusiastic about letting me know in that moment so that I could go back and do something about it. Hmm. Well, it, as I mentioned, like from moving, uh, moving from Melbourne to York, one of the things that I hadn't really done since, you know, like um, my brother is several years older than me. So probably about the time that the PlayStation 2 came out, he stopped playing games. And so I was playing games all by myself. And um, I went to an all girls school and there wasn't really any gamers around. So I pretty much spent most of my high school years playing games by myself. University, I played a little bit with um, other people in my class since they were gamers as well. But after university, everyone kind of dispersed. And then I was just playing games by myself again, occasionally streaming online. But uh, the thing that I've been enjoying most about moving to York is that every week now I go and play video games with my friend. And there's just that wonderful thing of like passing a controller between uh, two people or like, you know, just even being in the room as someone plays a game for the first time and just being like, hey, go over there, go over there. I mean, sometimes he tells me I'm being annoying and that he's just messing around, but I'm like, just just go there. Just come on. Just You just need to go there and hit that button. <laughs> uh, I think co collaborative play uh, is much more uh, engaging than um, just sitting and <laughs> listening to someone talk while they play a game by themselves. Although it, it really did kind of um, enable me to uh, be creative while I was doing a very intensive uh, day job in 2009. I, so I suddenly felt not so much alone because usually even when you say you're a gamer to someone, uh, they don't necessarily follow adventure games as much. Um, and then finding that there's this beautiful community of people that just love adventure games. It's just fulfilling. Uh, you mentioned the backseat designers recently. Actually, I, I have done a freeware title with them before, uh, late last night, uh, which just got a talkie version, I think about two weeks ago. Um, but they were at Adventure X and it was pretty much like, you know, hanging out with them all this, uh, the entire time. Uh, Trolls, who's one of the main hosts of that show did a, a travel vlog of his experience going to AdventureX and then coming back, um, which is a very good and compelling watch, especially when he gets stuck at the airport for 30, for 23 hours. But it, it does show like, you know, the, the close connectiveness of people that enjoy narrative experiences together and, um, you know, generally finding places where usually when people say gamers, they just go like, Oh, you know, you, you must play call of duty then. Um, 
which when I think about it, is probably one of the only shooters I haven't played. But, you know, in general, um, just finding someone who gets the sort of stuff that you like and, you know, you can drop a reference to a terrible adventure game from 1994 and everyone laughs because they all get it. Yeah, I find that, as you said, the kinds of games that we play aren't what are normally identified with gamers. If I meet somebody on the street, not at a gaming convention, but wherever, and it turns out that, oh, they have a PlayStation 4 or an Xbox One, they love to play Madden and Call of Duty, and they ask me, what kind of games do I like to play? And if I say, Firewatch, Gone Home, Oxen Free, Life is Strange, Depression Quest, <laughs> their eyes are going to glaze over because they have no clue what I'm talking about. And you know what? They're probably thinking that you're a casual gamer. That's exactly what I meant by that you're taking that by your own pace. But um, the the interesting thing about that is, especially when you talk about like people in their 30s and 40s that might not play video games uh, regularly or even you know at all at the moment. Uh, I found fa- I, I found this in the last couple of years, like talking to my my uh, siblings and cousins and you know like um, people that they knew. Uh, we like you know, going back to like the early nineties and like people getting CD ROMs for the first time, we bought a multi-pack of Sierra games and I was about seven at the time. And Leisure Suit Larry one VGA was one of the CDs. And I knew I wanted to play that even though my, I knew that my parents would not allow me to play it. So I stole the CD. Um, I, we pretend, you know, when, you know, when it came to like, Oh, I guess this CD has gone. Your mother must've thrown away. Yeah, I guess she threw it away. Um, and, so I proceeded to have Legend of Larry, uh, uh, like, you know, I played it by myself at night, you know, like when I wasn't supposed to be awake, just because so I could experience it at such a young age. But um, speaking to my my family, like to my my siblings and my cousins and that, they all played Legend of Larry at about the same time. But and it was all in about the same sort of like, you know, like in huddled spaces, you know, no one really talking about it. So it's sort of one of those things that it's great that even when you're in a whole room of, um, it's like a secret conspiracy of thirties and four year olds that we all played Leisure Suit Larry one. Um, so even when you go to like a place where it's like, Oh, we're not really gamers. It's like, yeah, but did you play Leisure Suit Larry one? Yeah, you did. (laughs) (laughs) No, I played it too. In fact, it may be one of the few Sierra games I actually finished back then. We had an Apple two, and I don't even remember how I got my hands on that game, but I mm. I played it when nobody else was around. And the hardest part of the game was the age gate at the beginning, where oh, I had to yeah. answer questions. Yeah, suddenly you, you like when someone asks you a question, you go like, "Oh yeah, it's this thing." It's like, "How did you know that?" And it's like, "Let's just say, Larry." Um, <laughs> right. But uh, it, it is also one of those things that you know, like. I think it's one of those things that people really like to copy, um, not copyright, um, pirate as well. I know that when I was in my all girl high school, um, I was in the laptop class and I might have installed it on every single laptop and everyone played it within that year. So um, <laughs> it's just, it's one of those things that, you know, a good adventure game can get around. And because adventure games do tend to not be graphics intensive, well, tend not to be dreamful was quite graphics intensive and beautiful. Uh, but uh it's much more easier for people to have these short little quick, uh, well, not even quick, but to have uh, shorter experiences with adventure games than it is to be like, oh, so you have a, um, you know, if you're a gamer, you must have a PS4 or something like that. Most of these adventure game titles are now either out on everything or you can get emulators to try it on everything. So it's a very easy thing to get. 
Well, I have one last question for you, which is we've been talking about games that we played as kids and now the games that we're playing now or are making, in your case. Mm-hmm. And I recently read this interview with a person you previously mentioned, Dave Gilbert of Wajedi Games. It was in Game Informer magazine. And he said that adventure games as a genre have this narrative that they died and now they've come back. And that isn't really true in his opinion that they've always been here and other genres have always been here without having that narrative of having died and having come back so why is it that pop culture or the media have framed uh, the adventure game genre in a way that isn't necessarily true but they haven't done that to other genres do you have any thoughts on that well i I can certainly say why um or at least why i believe that they there was this belief that adventure games had died I, I know that like if you look at certain like you know like websites that you know um it list games that come out every year there is this point at 1997 that it, there's like very very few adventure games that come out and for the next couple of years it's very few again but once 2001 2003 happens it starts ramping back up again um, and also including itself in a whole heap of other genres but I think it's the the thing with adventure games is that they are so tied up with LucasArts and Sierra. And it's at that point that both of those kind of took this conscious turn away from adventure games um, that it, it does make it very easy to be like, Oh, well these things don't exist anymore since the main two, uh, the main two Western uh, companies that deal with them have decided they're not doing them anymore. Um and I think from uh, what's it called from Sierra's point of view, I think part of that is the buyout, but also that they were trying to they were kind of trying to do the the bridging of the gap between uh, adventure games and other genres that were they probably saw as selling better. Um, but they they completely messed it up, of course. But <laughs> uh, it it's one of those things that I would actually even point out in terms of like um, bridging narratives. I mentioned earlier, like, you know, hidden objects games and, you know, certain adventure games website thinking that, the, you know, that, that, that that's the poison word, keep it away. But the thing that I always found interesting out of the hidden ob- object game genre is that it took itself from being a mere hide and seek game to an actual narrative experience. And um, in fact, it was actually probably mostly down to, say, Jane Jensen of uh, Gabriel Knight fame, who actually managed, like, because like, um, after she worked at Sierra, she then started working for I can't remember the name of the company, but she was uh, she was working on the Agatha Christie uh, hidden objects games, and she started bringing in a whole heap of adventure game uh, mechanics into it, and from there it just they just kept adding more and more, and so now it's sort of like, well, yes, it is a, the the main mechanic of that pushes the story forward is a hidden object game but i would almost say that it's taken so much from the adventure game genre that it makes sense to say that yes you know this is a narrative experience now this isn't just we are going to search for items um and so i think that uh that is also has also happened to a lot of other genres where they have taken the adventure game genre in so much that um it makes it more difficult to say that a game by itself is an adventure game uh, because it's now um, people are reporting more on the mechanic that is pushing the story forward more than the, the adventure or narrative experience. So it's kind of like when a company goes bankrupt, their IPs get bought out by all these other companies that get distributed throughout the industry. When Sierra and LucasArts went out of business, their concepts, their mechanics got picked up by other genres and other 
franchises and got adapted. And so other games are becoming adventure games just over the course of their evolution and the melding of genres. Exactly. Uh, because really when, um, when I, I mentioned earlier about, you know, like um, back in like the early nineties, all the different companies all seem to have their own sort of interfaces and their own design. Um, the main thing that they tend to share was that it was uh, the narrative experience and like, you know, talking to people and, you know, that there's a, there's an obstacle and you need an inventory item to get over it. But really that is any sort of game because like if you think about not obstacles but objectives in like say a shooter game what would be like you know here's this thing here you either need a certain weapon to shoot past it or you know you know get a key to go through the door and it's still that is the key of the adventure game you have an obstacle and a solution um and you can talk to people so really that is the adventure game that has been sucked into something else. So it's one of those things almost that did the adventure game genre actually ever exist, or it was just that it was devoid of the other mechanics enough that no one considered it anything but itself. So the adventure game genre has evolved a lot in the last several decades. Do you have any predictions for its future? I think it's going to be one of those things that either someone's definitely going to say, Oh, the adventure game genre either never existed or, um, Here's, you know, the adventure game genre is exactly what it is. Or someone's going to say it's dead again because, you know, that's what people love to do. They, they, they love to have like titles that it's like, you know, this doesn't exist, you know, gamers are over or whatever, you know, um, buzz titles sell much better. But <laughs> I definitely would say that VR is probably going to be a really good place for adventure games. Uh, especially since it's going to be one of those experiences that, you know, usually with VR at the moment, uh, people that tend to get the nausea it's mostly because things are moving around them or they're being moved without you know their their knowledge or anything whereas like an adventure game well you'd definitely be in control of that entire thing and i think that uh it, just, it will just take the uh detail of the experience in general and make it immersive and i think that that's going to be a great way forward for it that all people are just going to keep making the same things that they they really loved about a certain game in the 90s and uh try and improve it uh, I, I don't think there's a problem with that because most games really are a game that someone really liked in the past and then just added more to it. I think with adventure games, it makes it a bit more difficult because people go like, oh, it's this exact same story. You've just you've used the same mechanics. You've used even the same quest line. You've just changed the premise of the game. So it, it makes it a bit more interesting and varied if they can uh, make it something a bit more interesting and uh, bring in other elements yeah i think that's why we see a lot of pixel art games nowadays is because the designers who are making games now got started playing games when the 8-bit nintendo and even atari 2600 were out and so they're recreating and recapturing elements of their youth but building upon it and reinterpreting it in their own way Hmm. i think also uh pixel art in terms of uh game creation is a much more easier way into uh, making a game than anything. Um, I know certainly my original um, vision for Lorna Baines was actually like kind of like cartoon and like, you know, like fully animated. And now it's sort of like I'm taking the uh, visual novel uh, element of I'm not going to have the character walking around on the screen because that's just always going to look weird in every scene that I go into. Or, you know, like animation can be there, but it's going to be limited. It's, you know, like, especially with um uh lip sync and animation it's one of those things that it's a great thing but you know plenty of places 
don't realize that, oh, not, pl- not plenty of places, but plenty of people don't realize how much work goes into that. And, it, you know, when you are a small indie company, it's like, I probably could make that look really good, but it would take a lot of time and I have a whole list of things to do. So I think that, you know, like, um, uh, pixel art is a great way of going about it, especially when you're learning or, you know, uh, you can do some really great pixel art, uh, although I wouldn't really call it pixel art anymore. Uh, ben Chandler, who works for Wedgedi Games and has been, uh, you know, he's done all the backgrounds and characters of the most recent games in the Blackwell series. But he, the their new game that they're working on now, Unavowed, it's the same mechanic, but it's not being squashed down into pixel levels now. He's making it in like a really nice full definition and it's it's just looking brilliant. But it, it the, it's amazing how it, it translates so well from like the lower resolution to the higher resolution. And your, your eye kind of fills in the details anyway, that it's sort of like, I don't really notice the big difference between your old backgrounds and the new ones, uh, unless I really stare at it. Well, this kind of ties back into what I was saying about AGS versus unity, which is that constraints breed creativity, whatever your resources, they're not going to be infinite. So you learn to work with what you got. And if you are creative within those parameters, you can still do amazing things, whether it's pixel art or something more sophisticated. Well, the, the great thing about Unity is that there's no, there's not, there's nothing actually stopping you from going, you know, doing something more low budget. Uh, the game that I was working on just before I left Melbourne, that uh, it's one of, uh, there was a adventure jam, which unfortunately I didn't end up um, quite completing uh, because, um, well, I got, I got made redundant one day and then the next day my uncle died. So it was just sort of like, this isn't happening anymore. Um, but I, I've been slowly working on that game as well. It's just one of those things that, you know, since I'm not making that commercial, it's like, well, I'm just going to push it aside, um, until I have, you know, the, the time or brain power to work on it. Um, but, uh, that was all like, even though that that was in unity, it was in the same graphic style, um, and resolution that I had made, um, Abel Mabel gets a job, which was the year before, which was, you know, 16 colors and it was very eight bit. Well, not quite like I I was going for a very cartoony look, but I was definitely using that 16 color palette and, you know, with that being only like a 200, but I can't remember the resolution. It was very, very small, like about the same size as the original Sierra games for like King's Quest and that, that everything was very blocky and, uh, made it very interesting because one of the characters is a princess with tentacle arms. So it was very interesting to try and uh, relay the tentacle arms in 8-bit, but uh, or in, in pixel art anyway. But I, I think that the fact that you can do that in addition to adding, like, you know, like having full 3D characters that can walk around just like, a you know, as a shooter game does now, um, it, it just, it allows for so much more, but it doesn't mean that your 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 brain really has to stop uh, at the ideas that you were given in the previous uh, editor. It's just that now you no longer go like, oh, you know, I can't have um, so many timers happening because AGS only allows for four timers at a time. Or, um, you know, like I can't have a million and one rooms. Not that I suggest anyone should have a million and one rooms in a, an adventure game. But, you know, like AGS had a limit on how many screens you could have. It had a limit on how many characters you could have. It had a limit on how many sprites could be used in an animation. So if you were trying to make something really nice and slick, it was so much more difficult to do. I, I believe they are working on the system now to try and make it a bit more uh, advanced and a bit more expansive. Um, and I think that actually 
that they've now also got a better resolution support, which is great, but it's just one of those things that I know that I, I have a bit more freedom and a bit more leeway in unity. Uh, the problem with unity though, is because it is so big and you can keep expanding on things that either, you know, keeping the experience, uh, concise or just even being like, do these two things actually fit together or am I causing more issues by trying to shove them together? Um, which we found with, uh, two programs that oh, not two programs, but two plugins that said that they were compatible. But when I actually tried to say, well, well how is this, how is adventure creator calling this? I could not find the answer about how they were actually communicating with each other. Um, and so then of course it was like, well, either someone needs to write something, which I can't do. Um, although I did, uh, we did end up appealing to the guy who works for adventure creator to, either clarify it or add an extra box. He did something that it made it start work, but um, uh, it, it was very much a very much uh, a moment of, I have put these two things together. I do not know if they will ever work, um, even though I've been told they should work. <laughs> and that might be a constraint, regardless of whether or not the software will let you, there is still the constraints of your skills, your experiences, your imagination, and also more concretely, just time and money, which ideally mm. things like Indiegogo and Kickstarter can help resolve. Help. But yes. Right. But whatever game engine you choose, there are still going to be constraints of one sort or the other. Yeah, it's just it, I suppose it's deciding which barrel of errors you want to go with. If you want to go with one where it's you you have to be very, very uh tight on everything that you do so you have to pretty much plan everything even before you start because otherwise you'll run out of space or run into the option of you've been working on this game for a while you've added something it doesn't quite work and now it's changed everything else prior to that point in the game and you then have to go back and fix everything well hopefully you'll have a easy time of creating the next lorna baines game and that the indiegogo will conclude in january with a smashing success giving you all the resources <laughs> you need to create your game can you remind us where to find Reventure Games yourself and Lorna Baines online? Okay, well, Reventure Games is www.reventuregames.com. Uh, the Indiegogo uh, is linked in there, but I believe it is uh, http oh, it's, um, igg.me slash a at slash Lorna Baines. The link will be below. Um, I'm also findable. I have a Twitter, which is www. Well, I don't need to do the Twitter bit, but um, uh, it's at Rosalka. Uh, which is R-E-S-U-L-K-A. And uh, I also have a YouTube channel with that exact name, which is where the name came from. And uh, there's a lot of videos up on there. Um, um, it's like something like three, two to 3,000 videos. Um, <laughs> I pretty much, you know, did, was very uh, prolific a couple of years ago um, and left everything up and uh, have been adding some videos lately because I have also been doing a Patreon, although I'd really rather the Indiegogo campaign go well. The Patreon has allowed me to at least, you know, be like, I will put some videos on because people kept asking me to come back to do videos. But uh, I'm actually behind on that. I need to fix that up. But, uh, yeah, so uh, YouTube, uh, Twitter, our website. Am I missing anything? Where does the name Rosalka come from? Ah, it is actually um, interesting. It's an interesting and not so interesting story. Um, originally, uh, there's a there's a Sierra game. Uh, there's many Sierra games. Uh, Quest for Glory Four had a character called the Rusalka, and um, John Rhys Davies has some very great narration throughout the entire game. Uh, but 
there was an assignment at university where it was literally make a YouTube channel and it was like, like we're doing it this in one class. So you don't have time to, you know, decide what, you know, you're going to call it, you know, you just call it anything. And, um, so I was like, Oh, I, I liked, I liked the Rusalka, but I couldn't remember how to spell it. So it ended up becoming Rizalka. And, uh, people love to tell me that I keep getting that wrong. So a couple of years later, when I decided I wanted to do, you know, make a YouTube channel, I had no idea what to call it. And I was like, well, I actually have this, you know, channel that I've never used, uh, that I made at university. Why not use that? Um, and then people have just called me that ever since. So I'm rolled with it. Excellent. I should probably go back and watch some of your old videos and see what I can learn about how to do a Let's Play of an adventure game. <laughs> and children's games. Oh. Mostly just pointing out the weirdness of stuff. I, I almost actually lost my YouTube channel because I did a, a Let's Play of uh, the Scholastic's Magic School Bus Inside the Human Body. And uh, there's a part of that game where the children get out of the bus inside the, the lower colon, uh, you know, the bowel area. And they're not wearing any sort of, you know, suit or anything. They're basically children walking around touching poo. Uh, and that video got taken down, like, you know, and then they were like, let's keep taking all your other videos. And I was just like, I have so many scholastic videos. What have I done? Um, but uh, I, they, I contacted them and they actually said, yeah, sure. Just take all your scholastic videos down and we'll, we'll, we'll leave you with one copyright strikes uh, free so that you can at least keep your channel. But <laughs> wow. Well, I'm glad you got out of that relatively unscathed. Yes. Uh, I mean, really, what would what would I have really done? Just made a new channel, I guess. <laughs> People would have followed me there. Excellent. Uh, so there will be a link to your YouTube channel as well as everything else in the show notes found at polygamer.net. Natalie Yuha's creative lead at Reventure Games. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. I'm terrible. I'm losing my train of thought today. No worries. That's why it's not a live podcast. Yeah. Let's see. Now there was something else I was going to say that I think I forgot. <laughs> it's a curse. It gets around. <laughs> it's contagious. Ah.